Slovenly trolls, slovenly trolls, we're big, bad, evil girls. Hello, harlots, and welcome to a new episode of The Slovenly Trolls. I am your always faithful host without a heart, Lissa. And I am your faithless host, Charday. How are you doing? I'm doing grand. <laughs> welcome to the monologue of Charday. <laughs> welcome as Charday talks to herself. <laughs> The one the where we feel slight concern because is she okay? Is she not okay? We don't know. Find out on the next episode Listen. of Charday's Monologues. <laughs> no one is ever okay. And also, you're lying if you said you've never talked to yourself when you're alone. Oh, I talk to myself. But th- the point is I talk to myself and not people on the internet. You, may- you make a good point. <laughs> not gonna. I won't repeat that. Perfect. On that note. You might be wondering, what are we going to talk about on this episode? We are going to be discussing the following. The Ice Queen trope and our favorite Ice Queen, Aurel, as well as her counterpart, Thrym. We have a couple Patreon shoutouts as well. Our Patreons, our patrons, our very favorite people we love and admire. The following, Kim Winson. Becca Malama, Matt Dunn, Scott Williams, Tony Lattinen, Ryan Sheldon, Freen, Russ Lozetsky, Antonia Kessner, Nathan Wilson, Dread Ninja, Chrissy Bay, aka Fireboy, Dungeon Daddy Rick of Hammer of the Gods, and Jordan McLanson. As well as our very special shout out to our producer, Tier Chantrell Avery. Post production. On a less exciting note, here are the following content warnings for this episode. So we will be talking about human sacrifice, bullying, death, and religion. And if any of those seem like something that is a no-go zone for you, feel free to skip this episode and we will see you on the next one. So without further ado, let's go to part one, the Ice Queen trope. Part one. The Ice Queen trope. So in this section, we're going to go over what an Ice Queen is, where the Ice Queen trope originated from, and a little bit into what the modern conversations are around Ice Queens, just as a concept in both literature and in real life. Because some people might not know what an Ice Queen is and what the significance is. Some people might have heard it in conversation. Other people may not have heard it ever in their life, and this is the first time they're hearing about it. So if this is your first time hearing about it, this first part is for you. So, what is an ice queen? This definition we got from TV Tropes, aka our new favorite source, (laughs) from like (laughs) the past how many episodes? That is correct, yes. Yeah, we love TV tropes. One, because it's the articles are always fun to read. And two, it's just flat out a good resource, honestly, if you're ever looking for any tropes within media, literature, anything like that. So we took the definition from there. And TV tropes defines an ice queen as a major character archetype that is somewhat hard to define, mostly because there are so many different iterations of ice queen. So instead of having like an ice queen is insert definition here, it kind of has a checklist of what an ice queen can be. And usually if a character or sometimes 
a real life person as because media kind of puts titles on people. If they meet one of these criteria, they are defined as an ice queen. So the signature characteristic of an ice queen is they are always cold. This can be literally cold, like body temperature made of ice cold, or cold as in cold-hearted, aloof. And then she, because it's an ice queen trope, it's usually a woman or a female presenting character. She may have a cold heart, a frosty demeanor, and very often a resting bitch face. She attracts the attention of admirers, but will never be wooed by them. And scorned men are likely to call their failed conquests ice queens. After all, normal women would have given in to them. Obviously. <laughs> but yeah, we share the, it's obviously, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, and I have just a couple of examples written down. So in case that definition didn't do it for you. Um, I have some definitions that check most of those boxes that I just talked about and examples that check some of those boxes, but not all, mostly in personality. So the characters slash real people that I think check the most boxes are the Snow Queen, which is a character from the Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen, which we'll be talking about in just a minute. The White Witch from the Chronicles of Narnia. Mrs. Coulter from His Dark Materials, and Freya from Huntsman Winter's War. And then my real-life example is Lissa. Change my mind. <laughs> Lissa is an ice queen. <laughs> You're welcome. No comment. Would you, would you like to defend yourself? I am guilty, as charged. <laughs> You're a proud ice queen. Yes. Hashtag Hell yeah. all ice queens. <laughs> yes, all ice queens. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag ice queen and proud <laughs> yeah <laughs> for my some but not all aka mostly personality examples i have cersei lannister miranda Priestley from devil wears prada and possibly catwoman and then as a real life example i have hillary clinton because she was called an ice queen a lot and still is called an ice queen a lot I will not be going on a political tirade today <laughs> about my opinions on how, when, why, whomst, when, why, how, whenst. So <laughs> this is not the time nor place, a.k.a. if I start, I won't be able to stop. So, Lissa, please move on to your part of the section. <laughs> so where did the ice queen trope originate from? Let's find out. So we don't talk about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> the ice queen trope. <laughs> originated in stories and art. So I started looking into my part of this, so where the origins of the Ice Queen trope were from. And all that really came up over and over again was, one, Frozen, the movie. Let's not talk about that. And two, the Snow Queen story, which Chardé mentioned, by the one and only Hans Christian Andersen. So I looked into... Hans Christian Andersen. A lot. I, I digged into Hans Christian Andersen. A lot. A lot. It was a deep hole. You need to clarify because Hans Christian Andersen is dead. Did you rob his grave? Not that deep. Okay. Just making sure for legal reasons. For legal reasons, I did not dig into his grave. <laughs> just as fast. I I just, just looked at the top, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Hans Christian Andersen lived between the years 1805 and 1875. So he lived to be 70 years old. He was a master of fairy tales, an author of plays. He wrote novels, poems, a couple of travel books, and several autobiographies, of which I did read one of them. Anderson was known for his use of idioms and constructions in the spoken language. So the way he wrote in his original language in Danish, he did not use the literary way to write Danish stories, but instead used idioms and constructions from the spoken language because of the reason that he didn't actually receive a proper education until later in his life. Good. Don't gatekeep literature. <laughs> like, yeah. write whatever you want, however you want. He yeah. loved that. So there is a duality also in his work that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. So he does have two frosty lady stories, as I have called them. There is one that features the triumph of goodness and the beauty of innocence, which is the story of the Snow Queen. And there is the other one, which is largely contrasting the first one, a deeply pessimistic and unhappy ending one, which is called The Ice Maiden. Before I go into the actual two stories that I'm going to be looking at, let's look at Hans Christian Andersen himself, because like I said, deep, deep hole. So who was he? Hans Christian Andersen always perceived himself to be an outsider. Now, he was not a very masculine man. He was actually, in my opinion, quite feminine. Despite the international recognition that he eventually received, he never truly felt completely accepted by people. He was, specifically, he was picked on, he was bullied, he was a sensitive soul, and he was prone to crying. He does detail in the autobiography that I've read called The True Story of My Life from 1846 about how he went to a factory to... I can't remember if he was there to work, but he ended up uh, singing and acting there because that was his dream. And he, so he started singing to these journeymen there and he was picked on by them. He was seized hold off. He says, he says in the story of how he cried and screamed and how they called him a girl and not a boy. And he was as much ashamed as a girl, he says himself. But he does say in his autobiography that he that people must first of all suffer a great deal before they can bring anything to accomplishment. I don't like that. He had this image of, you. Ha in order to be a great artist, you have to have a tragic Blech. backstory, <laughs> which I mean is every D&D &D campaign ever. <laughs> I mean, I have my own opinions on it because like after going to art school, like a lot of people tell you that they're just like experience all of life's pleasures or you have to suffer you have to experience life in order to write about it and I'm just like yeah sure everybody experiences life differently if you've had a happy life and you want to make art about it that can be just as good of art as somebody who has had a objectively or subjectively worse life it I I hate that I hate that stereotype when it comes to art but it's been around forever obviously it's been around yeah. since Hans Christian Andersen and I ugh. you don't need to suffer to make good art that's why don't make yourself suffer just for art that's stupid <laughs> in my yeah. opinion you can suffer and make art but you can also be a happy person to make art they're not mutually exclusive just make art if you want to 
gross. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Looking into his parental influences, they really defined him as a character. And you can see that in his stories. His father was a man who really loved the arts, who read plays and poetry, who loved the theater, and encouraged his son to do that also. His mother, he calls in his autobiography, ignorant of life and the world, but had a heart full of love. And there is something really interesting between Hans's relationship to his mother and his view of women. And I think it has to do maybe with his connection to femininity and how he sees femininity and specifically femininity in women and their role in society, which we'll discuss a little bit later on in the episode. He was deeply, or his mother was deeply religious and superstitious and may have passed some of those traits on to Hans because he does in his autobiography as well question God question why things are happening and God and his all-knowingness and things about religion that somebody who would be religious would naturally, you know, come to question sometimes in life. In the duality that I talked about, the light side and sort of the dark side of him, there is, or I f did find some morbid influences in his autobiography that he talked about. He did state there that he found some morbid things quite interesting. He says, the more persons died in a play, the more interesting I thought it. And here he's speaking of when he started to look at Shakespeare's plays, King Lear and such. And he wrote his own first poem piece, which was a tragedy where everybody died. And I agree. I agree with him. I think that, well, not every story needs death, but I have an opinion that I've shared with a lot of people that if you have a TV show or like a book series that goes on for a long time, if you, if nobody dies in it, it's unrealistic. <laughs> and it's, I don't like it. <laughs> More dead people, the better, honestly. I agree. I concur. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do. I do like twists and turns and chaos in my stories as well. So I, I can't really mm -hmm. say anything else. <laughs> that <laughs> he did have he did see another side of the human condition in that his grandmother worked in the garden of a mental institution so she would take him to visit there and he would get to listen to and talk to some of the patients there and he does describe some of the events where he went to uh, no-go zone in nearby the cells of, you know, mental patients in solitary and how they scared him to almost death. Well, not death, but, you know, he, he felt very traumatized by that. He does say that he accidentally learned about the, and I quote, internal mechanism of the human frame without understanding any of it, which is very interesting in that when you it's interesting to then analyze some of his stories, knowing that he had actually been to a mental institution and seen different kinds of and states of the human condition. So you might be thinking at this point, Lissa, okay, you're go you've gone on for, I don't know how many, 15 minutes about Hans Christian Andersen. What's the point? Where are we getting to? So frosty women, where did they come from? We're talking about Hans Christian Andersen who created... Frosty Women, and the possibly the trope that we all know and love, 
or love. I don't know if we love it. Hate, love, whatever your relationship is with the trope. Yeah. Where do these frosty women come in? In his autobiography, he talks about when his father dies, and it says the following. He is dead, said my mother, addressing it. Thou needest not call him. The ice maiden has fetched him. I understood what she meant. I recollected that, in the winter before, when our window panes were frozen, my father pointed to them and showed us a figure as that of a maiden with outstretched arms. She has come to fetch me, said he in jest. And now, when he lay dead on the bed, my mother remembered this, and it occupied my thoughts also. So based on this, we can infer that the Ice Maiden may not have been a well-known symbol for death, such as the Grim Reaper coming to fetch people in the Danish community. It may have rather been a product of his father's poetic nature, his father's brain, it may have been derived from possibly Christian influences or may have been part of the Danish cultural sphere. But based on what it said about how it was a very specific phrase that the Ice Maiden had come to fetch him, I don't think that it was a very public knowledge or if it was a public or if it was public knowledge that there was some sort of a, a figure to come fetch him it wasn't that phrasing or what do you think i've never heard of the ice maiden as a symbol for death i like it a lot like i like having another i like having another image in my head other than like you said like the grim reaper or another specter of death but i am curious how an ice maiden has to do with death like is it because she's made of ice is it because she's cold and like when people are dead their bodies run cold and so maybe like the ice maiden's touch makes them cold I don't really know mm-hmm. but I'm interested to I'm interested in it as an image for sure and as an image for not only just an image for death but just as an image full stop yeah so I did look into this as the ice maiden or this woman of ice and i did find out that the japanese actually have a legend called the yuki ona a snow spirit who appears in snowstorms and who lead leads travelers astray to die of cold and is sort of a seductress-esque woman it isn't however a popular legend and it's only believed or known by those who live high in the mountains of Japan. So she is like a personification of death, much like the Ice Maiden is. But there is a TV trope that says snow means death. And there are certain myths and legends within the history of time where this shows to be true. And these ones are ancient. These ones are in the Norse belief of Ragnarok. They believe that Fimble Winter precedes Ragnarok, so the end of the world, and there will be eternal winter. And the Mesopotamian goddess Inanna was believed to show her emotions and then through that bring in the seasons of winter, summer, spring, depending, and these were related to the death of someone she loved. There was also links to the Greeks story of Persephone, but I won't go into that. So there was this common theme of like snow is related to death, but how did this snow, death, and 
personified in a specifically woman, a seductive woman who comes at you sort of thing. How did that all come about? So I thought about how is this all related to Hans Christian Andersen? I don't know that Hans Christian Andersen maybe would have learned about about the Norse gods until later in life. So maybe maybe he did get inspired by them, but his first story possibly wouldn't have been inspired before he started traveling in Europe. In Christianity, ice is also related to death because water represents life, therefore ice represents death. And not only that, but ice and snow are actually used as a form of punishment in the afterlife of Christian texts. For example, in the Apocalypse of Paul, they have different, they have, I think, two different sections that talk about how ice and snow are used to punish people who harmed orphans and widows and poor people and those who don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. It's also quite well known that in the 14th century epic poem, The Divine Comedy, it, the first part called Inferno, so in Dante's Inferno, it describes Dante's journey through hell and the ninth circle of hell is made of ice. And depending on the severity of your punishment, the you are more or less in ice, essentially. So what I'm getting from all of this is that snow and ice are the worst, winter is the worst season, and it is torture to have to live through any sort of winter and cold. I just had all of my feelings validated <laughs> from hating winter and hating snow. That's what I'm getting from this. No, I'm saying if you believe that, you're Christian. So are you Christian, Shredder? Okay, well, that is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like you also said, like there are all of these other well, yes. uh, myths and legends too. Like I, it's not just Christianity, but, well, I, yeah. you know, myths, legends, Christianity, they all, I think it's been talked about a lot just in in discourse in general. There are a lot of through lines between a lot of different myths, folklore, and religion just throughout the world. And ice seems to be a symbol that goes through all of them. Yeah. Ice and snow and... Hating it. Yeah. <laughs> Validated. Your opinions are valid, Shorday. Is that what you want to hear? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. That's all I wanted. Thank you. Thank you for acknowledging my feelings. So as Hans Christian Andersen was raised as a Christian, and there are through lines of saying the Lord's Prayer and the kissing of feet specifically as well in the other one, there are Christian elements in his stories as well, in the two stories that I'll go through. So he would have been exposed to these ideas of Christianity where ice and death are related. And also from his father, his father would have been exposed to this. And his father, being a poetic man, would have been able to, you know, make the personification of, you know, death become a maiden if he saw a frost on a window pane and pictured it to be, you know, a woman reaching out to him. Because, I don't know, maybe in the Danish community or in just in his house, maybe they thought that there was some, some sort of a snow maiden who frosts the windows over. Because that is sort of what happens in the Snow Queen, which I will actually get to now. So, smooth transition into the Snow Queen. So, the Snow Queen was written in 1844. It's a sort of positive story 
by Hans Christian Andersen, a, a fairy tale. The story goes so that there was a mirror created by a sprite who wanted to do tricks on people, who wanted to show the ugliness of the world. So the sprite creates this mirror and he wants to look at the world using it. So he goes higher and higher holding this mirror, looking at the world and laughing at all the ugliness of the world and how it's all great. However, he drops the mirror. The mirror shatters into a thousand bazillion little pieces that enter the eyes, the ears, the bodies of people. They're made into spectacles. They're made into, you know, window glass. They're used by people who find these bits of glass and bits of this mirror and incorporate it into their daily life. And one such person who gets bits of these mir this mirror in his eyes is a young boy called Kay. And he also, he gets not only a bit of mirror in his eye, but a bit of mirror in his heart. So his art heart is sort of ice cold from that for point forward. Kay is neighbors with Gerda, and they're sort of this, these innocent beings, these childhood sweethearts, you know, who are going to grow up to become, you know, a perfect couple, if you will. And after he gets this piece of, or these pieces of mirror inside him, Kay becomes, he begins to act out. He becomes, no, he begins to notice things that are ugly. He calls Gerda ugly for crying because he said something mean to her. He gains this confidence and this sort of pompousness that he's going to do whatever he wants. So he goes and takes like a, a sled and they attach the sleds to carts that are driving by. So Kay attaches his car sleigh to a cart of the Snow Queen, it turns out, and get essentially gets taken away by the Snow Queen into her own kingdom and... Gerda is left missing him because she is a pure innocent being who can do no wrong. So she goes out to rescue him. She's aided by talking flowers, animals, and women characters. And she, yeah, she goes to save him and she does save him eventually. But she actually does go through, and this is a Finland plug. Finland plug! Because she travels through Finnish Lapland and she meets a Finnish woman and my people, the Finnish people, <laughs> the Finnish person is silent and awkward, but she's also her mentor and she's super smart. So we stand Finnish woman. We stand nameless Finnish woman. <laughs> nameless Finnish woman. She's only called Finnish woman. So TLDR, Gerda finds this Finnish woman, gets mentored on how her innocence is the purest thing that she can have and how giving her a strength potion will not do anything because she has everything she needs to get him away from the Snow Queen. So Gerda goes off without her shoes, mind you. This woman has, this little girl has no shoes. She has had no shoes for the entirety of her journey as she travels from Denmark to the North Pole, essentially. Mm -hmm. And she goes there. The Snow Queen has left to drop some snow on... Mount Vesuvius or, or something. And she cries on him, her tears of innocence, free him from the mirror, the bits of mirror that were in his soul, and the 
the hold that the Ice Queen had on him. He finishes the puzzle that he has to finish in order to get mas- get mastery of himself back. So he has to spell out the words eternity in a puzzle. And he gets mastery of himself back. The tears break the mirror. And they go happily ever after back into, you know, his, their old town, into the house. And by that point, they are grown up. They are adults now. And they become, you know, a couple. And the end, ta-da. Clapping. It's applause. a hell of a time. Hell of a time jump. Yep. I mean, it's sort of, it's it's inferred in the story that each time that Gerda goes to one of these animals or one of these places that time goes past, like a year goes past, the seasons change. Uh, okay. So it takes her a long time to find him. It takes her a long time to find him, yes. Uh, but it, okay. so they they don't really talk about what he does for years as he's with the Snow Queen, but it takes her a long time to find him. She goes on a boat, she talks to a raven, she talks to a bunch of roses, she gets like essentially kidnapped by a witch, sort of a, a an old woman in a wooden, old woman in a wooden cabin sort of situation who wants a child. So she's going to trick her into staying with her. But she finds a rose. She talks to a rose and the rose is like, no, Kay's not dead. And then she uh, runs off and escapes and goes to save him again. So there's a whole story of how she gets Very to Very convoluted. Him. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what I get from that is purity will always win. Innocence and purity. Yay! Yeah. Yay! <laughs> Very fairy tale. Yeah. On a side note, it is believed by some critics that the Snow Queen was written about a specific actress that Hans Christian Andersen had a thing for called Jenny Lind. And it is quite well known that he, and I quote this, he craved the affections of women and was notorious for falling in love with unattainable women. So really he created, we're kind of spitballing because I think we can safely say after doing research, especially you doing research, like he penned this ice queen trope, basically. He started it or he made it popular. And it's all because he had a thing for unattainable women. And instead of saying, oh, well, maybe the women just don't want me. He's like, well, they're ice queens. These bitches. These, oh. It could be said, yeah. It's not surprising, but it's still disappointing. <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. So could you TLDR the other story too? Because we're almost out of time, but we still have a couple other points to make. But could you, because you said there's another one and I came up on this on my research too. Like the Ice Maiden is like not as well known of a story, but it has like similarities to the Snow Queen, right? Yeah. Is that fair to say? So In his later life, this was written in 1861, he goes on his journey to Europe and he goes specifically to Switzerland. He finds out about Swiss culture, about how how the souls of the lost are confined. So if you die in the mountains, the souls of the lost are confined till judgment day in the cold ice world. And he writes this story about this man who... Essentially, they fell fell into the Alps and uh, when he was a baby and his mother died there. 
and he himself also got kissed by the Ice Maiden. So this Ice Maiden killed his mother and also kissed him, but he got away and he lived. So he was the boy who lived, you know? Come to die. <laughs> but this man has no joy. He has no laughter because the Snow Maiden, because of the Snow Maiden's kiss. He is, he spends this entire story trying to wed, trying to marry a woman called Babette. And she sins before marriage, and then the Ice Maiden comes and tries to seduce him into becoming hers forever. And so this, it's a whole theme of, like, sinning before marriage, but they try to, they try to make it to the wedding to get married to each other. But there's a whole story. So he eventually then, before the wedding, gets wooed by the Ice Queen, or the Ice Maiden, sorry. The Ice Maiden, who appears as another woman, who kisses him, and then when they get to the wedding, she goes to the wedding and still wants this man because she will have him because she almost had him. So she goes to the wedding, she kisses his feet, and then she says, I kissed thee when thou wert a little child. I once kissed thee on the mouth, and now I have kissed thee from heel to toe. Thou art wholly mine. The man disappears forever, and Babette is left at the wedding altar being sad. So TLDR, uh, don't sin before a wedding or you will be taken by the Ice Maiden. Very Christian ideals popping through, with the first one being purity is above all else, like everything can be solved through purity, and this one is don't sin before marriage. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Or else you're going to get punished by the Ice Maiden. (laughs) Yep. And the Ice Maiden will have her way. Lovely stories. Thank you for Lissa's story time. (laughs) You're welcome. Well, that's a that's a tough act to follow because that's a lot of information to digest, especially with the stories. And I think we're going to be referencing them a lot throughout the remainder of this episode, especially like the themes of purity, of ice and seduction and death and all these things that Hans Christian Andersen wove into these stories because they can be seen specifically in oral. But I think also with Thrym, who's going to be in part three. So to close off this section, we don't have a bunch of time left, unfortunately. I had more to say about this specific article, but instead, I'm just going to leave you with a quote from an article I found because we've kind of spent a lot of time in the 1800s and Victorian times, and these Victorian ideals. So I kind of want to use the time machine and bring us back to modern day where these stories are being critiqued and analyzed and there's a lot of discourse around them about what they mean, and especially through a feminist lens, I thought it was important because we talked about especially all these Christian ideals, but there are also other themes and motifs that I want to bring up to kind of close off this section. And this quote, it's a pretty long block quote, but I think it summarizes a lot of the discourse around the Ice Queen trope, specifically with Hans Christian Andersen and a lot of other stories that are very similar and characters that are very similar. So this quote is from an article called Incarnations of Lilith, the Snow Queen in Literature for Young Readers by somebody from Sweden whose name I'm going to butcher. Monica Nordstrom Jakobsen. 
and she is a senior lecturer of education and languages at Lu- Lulia? Lulia University of Technology. That was perfect Swedish. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> you're just being nice, and um, I don't like it when you're nice. It freaks me out. <laughs> I wonder why. So this big block quote basically summarizes a lot of the points that the article talks about. We'll link to the article in our sources. And it says, Snow queens in literature for children and adolescents are generally incarnations of Lilith and consequently evil. They are powerful and seductive, which makes them more villainous than their male counterparts. What they fear most of all is love and warmth, and they fight to keep their victims away from warm and gentle feelings, as well as love and passion, by putting them in a state between life and death, preventing them from growing up. The only way of escaping this fate is to be rescued by true and everlasting love. Women who have a desire for power and independence will have to live their lives without love. They are doomed to a cold and lonely existence. In this way, the representations of the Snow Queens in literature for young readers become powerful reinforcements of patriarchal gender ideologies. Ooh. Yeah. There's a lot. They don't really look upon these stories kindly for, for the Ice Queen. They they think kind of like we spitballed a little bit in this section uh, about how if Hans Christian Andersen really did base specifically the Snow Queen on somebody, it kind of lines up with that. He didn't have, if that really did happen, he kind of projected his own issues of lovelessness onto this female character and for those who are curious this article talks about the snow queen but it also talks about the white witch from the chronicles of narnia and uh, mrs coulter from his dark materials and kind of draws comparisons between those characters as being sexual assertive independent snow queens and also goes on like a little bit of a analysis on the fact that they're all sterile so on top of being you can't be loved because you are a independent like sexual being you also just biologically can't have children which goes against like the male ideal in this victorian era when a lot of these stories are being written and even in the early 20th century when these stories are being written that's what quote unquote a woman's role was fascinating stuff i'll talk i'll maybe refer back to this article a couple of times in the next section but it really is a fascinating read, and I thought it was important to talk about on top of giving context for who Hans Christian Andersen was, maybe why he created these stories, how he created these stories, and where this trope originates from. So we can give a modern lens to it and get a better idea of how Oral, the Frost Maiden specifically, was created in D&D because feel like every episode I have to say this. This is a D&D podcast. <laughs> we talk about D&D. And we contextualize D&D. And this is what we're here for. We're here to talk about all the problematic stuff with it and where it came from and do better. So with that said, let's get into part two, Oral, the Frost Maiden. 
Part two, Oral, a.k.a. the Frost Maiden, a.k.a. the Snow Queen of the Forgotten Realms. We just talked your ear off about the origins of the Ice Queen trope, which we have kind of softly attributed to, no, hardly, maybe just hard. We (laughs) hard attribute it to Hans Christian Andersen. (laughs) According to our research, um, it is very hardly Hans Christian Andersen's fault. It is hard Christian Andersen's fault for all this. (laughs) It's his upbringing. It's his opinions on his mother and women. It's it's a lot of it. Religion. And we're now going to be talking about oral. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Oral, who, honestly, I'm a big fan of after doing all this research. So let's just jump into it, shall we? Let's contextualize our goddess queen, Oral, the Frost Maiden. Oral is a goddess that only has two major portfolios, or one portfolio with two things attached to it. She's a very specific deity. She is the goddess of cold and winter. Sometimes she caveats into like winter storms, but mostly you will see her attributed to cold and winter. She is a lesser deity or a demigoddess, depending on what edition you are referring to, which is honestly fascinating to me because there is so much information on oral. I unfortunately had to cut a lot out for this section, some of which I might talk about on (gasps) After Dark. But for now, I kind of stuck to the most talking points, a.k.a. the stuff that made me the most mad and or confused because Oral is a Forgotten Realms goddess. And if you've listened to our podcast before, you know we've done a lot of episodes (laughs) on Forgotten Realms goddesses. We've done one on Alistree and Loth. We've done one on Soon and Shares. We've done one on Bashaba and Loviatar. We've we've done a lot. This is a running theme. I think we're almost low-key kind of like goddess experts at this point, which I'm proud of. I, 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 expert on Forgotten Realms goddesses is a good title. So Oral is known by a lot of names. Oral is the Frost Maiden. She is Ice Dawn. She is the Cold Goddess and also Lady Frost Kiss which is a title that I'm still conflicted on. (laughs) I will get to that later. Uh, Her symbol is basically various versions of a snowflake motif. So you could say Oral is a special kind of snowflake. I love that for her. Yeah. Her alignment is mostly neutral evil, but in 4E, weirdly, she's chaotic evil. I don't know if it's because she was in a rebellious phase. There wasn't any information on why. That I could find, at least, if anybody else's information on why that changed in terms of lore, let us know. Her home plane used to be Pandemonium, but as of 4E, she has moved to somewhere called the Deep Wilds. And fun fact, with two fun facts. So first fun fact is Oral is one of 19 attractive deities on our Hot Evil Deities stat sheet from episode 12. Hot Evil what? H-A-W-T. What? 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 We did an entire episode with, well, not an entire episode based on hot deities specifically, but it was part of it. 
It was part of it. I went down a whole rabbit hole trying to figure out how many attractive date, how many of the deities of the Forgotten Realms were attractive. And there are 19 of them. Not actually, no, it wasn't just the Forgotten Realms. It was Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, all the settings. And there are 19 of them. And Oral is one of them. That episode, episode 12, is how I first not heard of Oral. I knew of her, but I found some of the things I'm going to be talking about today, which inspired me to suggest this for an episode. She's also, fun fact number two, she's created by Anne Greenwood, like many other things from the Forgotten Realms, and her first appearance is in the magnum opus of Forgotten Realms Deities, an article from Dragon Magazine number 54, Down to Earth Divinity, and she was later flushed out in 2E, 3E, 4, etc. She's been flushed out ever since. So, description slash personality of our Forgotten Realms Snow Queen. So... She has two avatar forms that are outlined in 4E called the Frost Maiden and Ice Dawn. Those two forms uh, go back and forth or they're combined in other editions throughout Forgotten Realms history, I guess you could say. But the consensus of how Oral looks and the, the traits that seem to carry over from every edition are that she has blue skin. Long, free-flowing white hair, an icy hauteur, and either she's either wearing icy armor or a flowing white dress. Because all goddesses have to wear flowy dresses, apparently, which is fine. But it's just it's a pattern I know I'm noticing after doing so many of these. And in fifth edition, she's described as jealous, which is the first time she was ever described like that. And I'll get to that more at the end of the section because I have a conspiracy theory on why that is. But as of now, that's kind of her main descriptor. Picture it in your head. This beautiful, blue-skinned, white-haired woman. And there are two specific descriptions that I want to highlight as well because they – one of them is kind of how she's described basically in most editions – and another one she's described as once, and it's interesting. So the first one <laughs> is uh, she's described as fickle, vain, and an evil creature whose cold divine heart remains untouched by any hint of true love, noble feeling, or honor. And this description basically survives through most of the editions, especially the word fickle and true love as a phrase, which is weird because none of her lore or backstory, her relationships have anything to do with love. But I think, and Lissa, I don't know if you might have an opinion on this. I just think this is might be a direct, I don't want to say rip off, but a direct allusion to the Ice Maiden and or the Snow Queen, just kind of taking her representation of she's the antithesis of true love and just putting that to text. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think there are some definitely some similarities between the Snow Queen and the Ice Maiden and Oral. I think in terms of appearance, she's more like the Ice Maiden. So the Agreed. Snow Queen was the Snow Queen was said to they didn't really talk about her hair or anything like that. She was just described as beautiful, clever, a lovely countenance. Yeah, and that he felt like the boy felt inferior to him, her. Mm-hmm. And that he was never enough for her. 
and she had a cloak and cap of snow, tall and slender, dazzling white. But more so the Ice Maiden had long flowy white hair. She had a dark green robe that glittered like the waters of the deep Swiss lakes. So there we go with the Swiss theme. And her icy fingers, her icy kiss. I mean, both of them had icy kisses, but specifically. Yeah. She, the Ice Maiden was the power hungry, I own kind of mentality of like, he is mine. And I have the power mm-hmm. to season crush things who go against me. I think, because from what I know, I'll get a bit more into her personality in a second, but I think she shares, especially later editions of Oral, I think you're right. I think she shares a lot more with the Ice Maiden. But in early editions, I think her her personality is more of the snow queen because she there's literally like nothing to do with any sort of relationships or anything like her motivations are not to seduce her motivations are not to take away like a man from his betrothed because uh one of them was impure before marriage Mm -hmm. her she has nothing to do with true love absolutely nothing so when I saw that she was described as she's untouched by any hint of true love, I'm just, it just stuck out to me. And it's part of the reason why I'm really interested in our part three about Thrym because mm-hmm. he shares a lot of stuff with Oral. But I <laughs> I have a feeling that he any mentions of love for him, his like relationships or his lack of true his relationships are not even going to be mentioned. I just have a feeling because mm-hmm. whenever it's a female deity, they always have to basically have the caveat like, can a player seduce this woman? Mm-hmm. Is a theme that I'm noticing. Whether like they use the word seduce or whether they say that they are affected by true love. Because Loviatar is also like this, which is a goddess we covered before. She's the goddess of pain. And she, in her descriptions, specifically says she can't be wooed basically i mean if you're gonna put a hot goddess in front of you know male male centric players obviously they're yeah. gonna want to try and bang the hot goddess just because but is saying that you can't do it like it's <laughs> we're all children at heart sometimes if you put a button in front of somebody and say you can't push the button players are gonna want to push the button <laughs> i mean yeah that's that's accurate yeah So I don't even know if it makes a difference. Mm. But another thing that, like, when you were talking about the Ice Maiden, she's, it's not that Mm -hmm. she's, it's not that she's punishing him for, for sinning before marriage. It's more so, I think there's the, the moral of the story is don't sin before marriage, but it's more so that she wants to own him. She almost had him. So she kissed him as a baby. Mm She almost had him, but he got away. And then she tried to woo him again and had to, like, make herself to appear as another woman to do that. She kissed him on the lips, and then she goes to the wedding, and then she kisses his feet. And then, therefore, she now owns him because apparently she needs to kiss him three times at three different points to in order to own him. So it's more of I don't I don't know if it's even about jealousy, but it's more so she has to own him. It's like this malicious intent and this right ownership of this man. So that I don't know. 
hold on to that thought because that might come into play when I talk a little bit about Oral's newfound jealousy because mm. I think that is really reminiscent of that. But like, or, like I said, early editions of Oral, like there's literally no mention of like she doesn't give a shit about owning people. She doesn't give a shit about really anything except for being feared. Mm-hmm. Like that's basically her goal. She just wants to be feared. And I'll yeah. get a little bit more into that. But uh, the second description that I really wanted to point out before I move on is her eternal beauty is cold and deadly. The flower of womanhood preserved forever in a slab of arctic ice with sensibilities to match the ice this is the description that made me want to do an episode on oral (laughs) specifically because there's nothing about oral's actions that make her any sort of seductress but they have to mention like something like the flower of womanhood preserved forever which in my interpretation I think they're just saying Oral's a virgin and she's salty about it, which I don't like. <laughs> like I don't like how that's described at all. Yeah. And I don't know if it matches any descriptions for Hans Christian Andersen's. I don't know if he was ever I mean, that blunt. It doesn't really match anything I've read from either of the ice, the, the Snow Queen or the Ice Maiden, but it does match Hans Christian Andersen and some of the rumors that were going around. Yeah about him I think they specifically like took the trope of ice queen that was invented so to speak or inspired by Hans Christian Andersen Mm -hmm. and maybe use like a later iteration of it to really hone in on Oral's description yeah and I don't know what that is because we just flat out didn't have enough time (laughs) to research all iterations of ice queens throughout media and literature and stuff yeah but again, you could tell a man wrote this because I don't think any woman in her right mind would describe another woman that way, in my opinion. Uh, the flower of womanhood preserved forever in a slab of Arctic ice. Like, they're trying to be poetic with it. They're trying to be a little bit, I would say, cheeky with it, with that description. But it just kind of, when I read that, I got like a shiver because I just didn't like that description at all. But it's not that one for me. The one that does me is sensibilities to match the ice. So she's so unsensible that she's Mm -hmm. literally a block of ice. Yeah. And that matches her forever preserved flower of womanhood, which can be interpreted as a lot of things, but my interpretation is... People refer to colloquially a woman's virginity as a flower. So that's what, how I'm interpreting it. I mean, yeah, that is probably what they meant, I would assume. And I just think I don't understand why it's relevant to a goddess of ice and cold and winter. I love a lot of aspects about oral, but that specific description. And it's not even, it's also, yes, it, it's a description from second edition, surprising no one. I have a hate, hate relationship with second edition. <laughs> so yeah, it's from second edition, but it it was also, this description is also in 3.5. Yeah. It was reprinted in the 2000s. I I don't understand why. It, it was it went away by 4th edition and 5th edition, but for like two editions it was kept and that rubbed me the wrong way. But I feel like I've <laughs> I've ranted too much about it, but those are my opinions. That's my opinion. 
She has two other manifestations. She can also appear as Icy Breath, who does that kind of signature evil laugh. Mm-hmm. And she also can appear as a blank-eyed face of frost with long, wind-whipped white hair that radiates cold. And this one I wanted to point out specifically because it says she slays with a life-chilling kiss, which I think is a pretty obvious allusion to at least the Ice Maiden, probably the Snow Queen as well, but definitely the Ice Maiden. Yeah, the Ice Queen, no, no, the Snow Queen did kiss the child on the forehead Mm. and multiple times and it put a shiver through his body each time and i think that's how she got control of him sort of Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of layers to that right because a kiss is an act of closeness Mm -hmm. right it is usually you kiss people on the cheek the lips Anywhere on their body, it, it, it has different indications in different cultures, but it usually symbolizes closeness. So I kind of have mixed feelings about Oral taking that specific thing from those stories because I think it's interesting that something that is a symbol for closeness is being flipped and it's now something that's more sinister. But I also don't trust forgotten realms lore a lot because they just they put stuff how do i word this they sexualize things that shouldn't be sexualized Mm -hmm. a lot and they sexualize female deities when they shouldn't and i'm not saying all kisses are sexual but because i've seen like just this pattern throughout all of them I am unsure if their intention was to flip that on its head, like make something that's a gesture of closeness into something that could hurt you, or if they just wanted to describe a female deity with female deity attributes that they've used before. Mm -hmm. Kissing, caressing, embracing, like every female deity has to have some combination of these like I I keep going back to Loviatar but even with Loviatar she had I think an ability that was called Loviatar's kiss I'll call it it was something kiss and I'm like Loviatar would never kiss anybody she is all about pain I don't understand yeah so I have mixed I have mixed feelings about it I don't know if you feel the same way but like I like it because it flips that warmth and that good gesture on its head but also I've seen them use it badly before so I'm not quite i don't know i'm not quite sure how i feel about it for oral specifically yeah in the case of the snow queen she does she does not have anyone to love her and then she kisses this young boy on the forehead Mm -hmm. and takes him as her own child puppet what have you i don't know if it's just using the femininity to control other people Mm -hmm. because it's you it's definitely using the feminine wiles of what women should be and the stereotype of oh women should be hot and pretty and they should be loving and men should be kissed by women obviously because they are entitled to be kissed by women (laughs) and then when when like when they are so it's like a draw in 
Yeah. But it's used for malicious intent, so you're flipping it on its head, uh-huh. if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. And it, yeah, it highlights why I'm I'm torn on it. Like it flips it on its head. Yeah, seduction and kissing, embracing, that can be used for sinister purposes. But I feel like we have to take a closer look at it because these are female presenting characters. These yeah, are women definitely, definitely. identified. So yeah, I just think we have to take a closer look at it. I don't know if I have the answers right now, but I feel like at least it's worth pointing out and... If you, our listeners, have any opinions, please share that with us because yeah. I, I I don't know how to feel about it. And I'm not saying that you are, need to tell me how to feel about it, but sharing your feelings might help me and maybe other people. And Lissa, I don't want to speak for you, but help us kind of yeah, no. come to terms with this specific, what's what's the right word? Uh, <laughs> direction. In- this specific direction, direction. That we're taking. Yeah. Brief into Oral's abilities, Uh, they're basically what you would expect. She has freezing abilities. She turns a lot of things brittle, like uh, some people's weapons. And in every edition, it makes very clear that her abilities kill plants. So any sort of wilderness or anything of the sort just turns to ice and she kills it with her touch. Uh, They make that very clear. So I just have written down, Oral hates plants. (laughs) In terms of relationships, this is very brief because it doesn't go super into it. And this might be because she's a lesser deity. There's a lot written about Oral, but her lore is very sparse because I believe it's probably because she's technically a lesser deity, but that's just me spitballing. She is part of a group called the Deities of Fury, and she shares this group with three other deities, uh, Talos, Umberly, and Malar. So Talos is the god of storms, forest fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, destruction. And he is outlined in every edition as her superior. And in some editions, he is it's specifically stated that he is trying to encroach on Oral's territory. So he is trying to take cold and winter from Oral, or her flowers are depleted because he's trying to use them to his own devices, that sort of thing. Uh, so they don't have a great relationship, I think it's easy to say, but they're still part of this group together. Umberly, who is the goddess of the sea, aka the sea bitch, is an actual title that she has. She is weirdly Oral's like confidant, I want to say, is might be a good word for it. Like whenever Oral calls on the aid of the deities of fury... Umberly is the one she actually trusts the most, which I thought was really interesting because from all the evil deities that we've covered and looked into, I don't think I've ever seen like trust alluded to as much as I have as the relationship between Umberly and Oral. And they're both evil deities, right? Yeah, both evil. Yeah. Yeah, they're both evil and they trust, or at least I didn't look into Umberly's opinion on Oral, but... Oral trusts Umberly pretty implicitly. And I thought that was super interesting. That is quite cool. I'm a big fan of Umberly, but yeah. Uh, and the last one is Malar. He is the god of the hunt, evil lycanthropes, beastial savagery, and bloodlust. And the two of them have mutual hatred for each other for a list of reasons, honestly, that I won't get into. But let's get a little bit into her church, her worshipers, because that's also a very interesting aspect of her. So... As I mentioned before, 
She is, Oral is a deity that is worshipped mostly out of fear, not being revered. So she doesn't want to, she, she's not interested in having a lot of power in terms of clergy people. She doesn't want to rule the world. She just wants to be feared. That's her goal, which again, very interesting <laughs> in my opinion, because usually gods, even lesser deities, are consumed with their want to have power and either climb the ranks or instill a certain amount of I think there are some that want to instill fear, but they want to instill fear and also strengthen their hold and convert people and do this. But Oral just wants to be feared. And I love that for her because I also want to be feared. <laughs> and in additions, like back and forth, there is some contention regarding the how frequent you would run in like how frequently you would run into a member of her clergy. So in early editions, there are many members of her church, but the organization is very loosey goosey, which I wrote down is very reminiscent of Soon's church, Sune's church, mm-hmm. where there's not a whole lot of or there are titles and there is a hierarchy, but it's not super organized, which I thought was interesting because again, it seems like they're kind of sometimes reusing descriptions between female deities i'm not saying that's what they're doing intentionally but the fact that i was able to connect the dots between the two female deities just set off not alarm bells but just you could draw the lines you could draw the lines between the two yeah in later editions her clerics and priests are much more rare only really being in very remote areas and it's very reminiscent of the story you were saying was it the Japanese legend of only being really known in a very remote area Mm -hmm. that's kind of how it is with Oral's worshippers like she's not necessarily only known in those areas but you would only find her clerics in like very remote very arctic regions Mm mm-hmm But when they are around, so when the clergy of Oral, you run into them or what have you, they have a lot of different titles and a hierarchy, but the most common clergy are called ice priests and ice priestesses. And I also wrote down, because I just thought this was interesting and I'd never seen this before with clergy, people who worship Oral tend to participate in the grind by delivering items in sub-zero temperatures for money the grind either to support their the grind you know like the colloquial phrase that all of those um be your own boss babe participate oh, in the God. grind <laughs> i was picturing like grinding in a club and i'm like I'm no so confused <laughs> no they participate no, in the like... grind and i'm just picturing like a snow themed club I'm at more like grind culture. <gasps> okay, like, okay. Uh, okay, got you. <laughs> like that's aligned with like business people. Like you see a lot of people on the internet just saying like, if you participate in the grind, like you'll be successful. You got to grind to be successful, which is very toxic mindset in my opinion. But mm. I wrote it down just because it gave me that vibe. 
And they use the money to either just for their own upkeep or to make tribute to Oral. I think some ceremony she has, they scatter gold pieces in the snow or something of the like. Hmm. As with, again, I'm making all these connections to other female deities because there are a lot of patterns that I've noticed. Just like a lot of other female deities, Oral has, in many of the editions, it's alluded that there are more female members of the clergy than male members, but they don't give a reason for it. So my theory is that whoever's writing Oral whether it be Ed Greenwood or anybody who contributed to her creation, they just put mostly female clergy for every single female deity. Like regardless of domain, regardless of (laughs) their alignment, it's just, oh, if she's a female deity, obviously she's going to attract more female clergy because the patriarchy is the default. And whenever it deviates, they have to mention it. Because again, I I don't think... We've we've covered a couple of male deities. We'll mm-hmm. talk about Thrym in a bit, but we've also, I think, covered Veyron very briefly as well. Yeah. Veyron is a specific case because he goes against the drow matriarchy and it's specifically said that he has more male clergy members, but that made sense because of how the lore was. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling if we look into more male deities, we're not going to see, oh, let me just pull a random deity out of my ass. Paylor, like let's say Paylor, who is the Dawn Father, I don't think in any of his descriptions it's going to say, oh, Paylor attracts mostly male clergy. I, I, I don't think they're going to say that. I, I don't think they are either because it's the default. And obviously when you don't say anything, that just means it's, you know, as regular society. Therefore, what, 80, 20, 70, yeah. 30? Some number that we don't know. <laughs> it's it's just again it's just a pattern that I've noticed like any female deity that you read up on it's gonna say oh well they're mostly female clergy but they don't give a reason why and I just think it's just to default from the patriarchy (laughs) not to go on a rant here but um from our women are monsters episode like approves Mm -hmm. of like therefore if you know you have Eve, and then you have Lilith, and you know, the snake and Eve, they're the same thing. So, you know, like approvers of like, you have a female deity, you're going to have female clergy. Mm hmm. Obviously. That's how that works. Obviously. Totally. 100%. <laughs> in fifth edition, so I found this interesting. In fifth edition, Oral's clerics are celibate, completely celibate. And There was never any mention of this in any of the other editions, which is odd because usually, you know, second edition is really specific on these sorts of things. But no, fifth edition specifically had to say that Oral's clerics are celibate. And I wasn't sure if this was an allusion to that first description of her with like her womanhood encased in ice or not like it could Mm. be it could not be Mm -hmm. I'm not sure but also I was wondering if it had any sort of connotations because she is specified to have a mostly female clergy so what does that say about a female clergy that's mostly celibate and them like holding on to their purity because 
if you look into the influences of the stories we talked about earlier, the Ice Queen, or I'm sorry, the Snow Queen and the Ice Maiden don't represent purity. They represent the opposite of purity. Purity is what defeats them. So I'm wondering where this all came from. I don't know if you had any theories on why that is, because it was more of a question that I had. I don't even know if you have any theories, but. I mean, it, two things come to mind. First of all, is she a nun? (laughs) Which the answer to that, I feel like, is no. No, it is not. She is not a nun. Yeah, she's not devoting herself to anything or anyone other than people fearing her. So the answer is no. Second thing that comes to mind is, how did Christianity fuck this up? (laughs) Well, To answer that question, purity equals celibacy exactly. and women specifically so, need to be pure. So. That's the second thing that comes to mind. But, but this is but this is fifth edition. This is the most progressive I know. edition. That's why I'm very confused. That's why I'm very confused. I'm confused. You're confused. Everyone's confused. If somebody has an answer to this, please let us know because I'm very confused by what they were trying to say or maybe it was just a detail they put in to like add some flavor i don't agree with that (laughs) but i mean based on what this just kind of sounds like yeah they looked at hans christian anderson's the snow queen and or the ice maiden they were like yeah let's just dig right into the whole christianity thing and we'll make her celibate too well that and also it is inferred that oral is a virgin in earlier editions and then it is also inferred in analyses of those two stories by hans christian anderson that these women are emotionally unavailable emotionally unavailable and or celibate and or not partaking in romantic trysts or what have you That's, I just felt that was worth pointing out because, you know, the fact that they felt the need to say it was mostly female clergy and that they were celibate, just, I'm not, there's some connotations there with females and purity and all that stuff. Because let me, let me put it this way. If it was an all male clergy, I don't think they would be celibate. There's no way. Yeah. They would be celibate or they would be mentioned or made celibate. I, I hope that we do research in the future that proves us wrong with that, that we'll look into male gods somewhere and we'll find a celibate, a, a clergy for a god who chooses to be celibate. Yeah. It's a male god. I hope I hope we're wrong. I hope we're wrong, too. I'll try to speed run through some of these other things because I want to end on a little story that I found about Oral and unpack that. So Oral does not have any orders associated with her. Uh, like a lot of other gods do, no knightly orders that follow her whims, nothing like that. Instead, she attracts a lot of cults, like a lot of cults. I think maybe that's possibly because she's evil, but can't say for sure. I didn't look super into it, but it is worth mentioning. Uh, Oral also accepts the occasional sacrifice, human or animal, but mostly she just wants people to fear her. She's like, yeah, sacrifices are cool and all, but really just instill fear in people. And if you have to do sacrifices in order to do that, more power to you. Hmm. Another interesting thing I found about her, which is I think part when I started looking like further, further into her and I got past all the icky, yucky stuff in like second edition and third edition, is that she has a very close relationship with druids. And it's briefly mentioned in early editions, but it's really 
unpacked in 5th edition. So in 5th edition, she is canonically part of this group of deities called the First Circle, who are the first druids ever. Wow. And these deities are of all alignments, and they represent all the seasons and all things to do with nature. And I love that for her. That's really cool, actually. Yeah, I really, really liked that a lot. And I really liked her connection with druids specifically because it totally makes sense. She represents a part of nature. Druids are a very nature-based class. And I really liked the addendum that they made in 5th edition saying that druids don't really care about alignment. They represent what they represent. And I thought that was pretty, pretty rad. Yeah, I think I, I think that's a good set of lore to go with. Yeah, for sure. That kind of gives her a flavor instead of just being... It fleshes her out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's not just an ice queen. Yeah. She is an ice queen. But she also is part of this group of deities who represent so many different things and she has ties to nature. And yeah, she might be construed as evil or her actions might be more harsh than others, but she's still on the same level playing ground as all these other gods. And also, she's still a lesser deity. Yeah. She's being given all this lore and she's a lesser deity, which I really like and appreciate. I like all my deities to be fleshed out with lore personally. Now that you say that, part of the Ice Maidens, in the Ice Maiden story, one of her motivations was to gain, or rather, bring the power of nature over mankind, because there was sort of the struggle apparent between the iron snake, uh, aka trains, mm-hmm. going through the mountains, and how she was battling that with avalanches and the power of nature, the force of nature, mm. which really, I think, ties into the whole oral as a druid, which I think they should mm-hmm. lean more into because I there is an aspect of like winter and ice, and that is a part of nature. I think you're on to something because I think. By 5th edition, they're leaning more into the Ice Maiden Hans Christian Andersen story than the Snow Queen. Yeah. By a landslide. And I'll get to why specifically I think You mean an avalanche. (laughs) 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 So funny. Thank you. Just slapping my knee over here. (laughs) Very (laughs) brief into her holidays and traditions because most deities have them, um, even lesser deities, so... Her constituents, her anybody who worships her, uh, has a deep connection to midwinter, which is not super surprising. She also has an initiation ceremony called the Embracing, where people will go out into the cold for a night, and if they survive the blistering, awful, unforgiving winter, they are welcomed by Oral's embrace, which again is that dichotomy that we that I talked about earlier where it's a traditionally like warm, loving characteristic, a warm and loving gesture, but it's flipped. But in this in this instance, she's saving them, so it's still kind of a warm gesture. You see why I'm still confused about this? Mm-hmm, like, yeah. I want to like it because I see what they're trying to do, but also sometimes like with stuff like this, it's contradicting. Mm-hmm. So I'm s- still unsure. I want to hear everybody's opinions on it to help me better understand because I'm, I'm still trying. And then the last holiday is from the Sword Coast Adventures Guide in 5th edition, and it's something called a wet parade, which I just wanted to say out loud. It's, 
Because, um, you know, we got a reputation to uphold. And uh, I gotta uh-huh, make uh-huh. One dirty joke per episode. And <laughs> this is one of them. She has, it's not even a joke. It's just a fact that this exists. She has wet praise. <laughs> and it's basically just a ritual where people don garments, they pack them with ice, and they go between six white pillars known as the Kisses of Oral, which are dispersed throughout uh, the city of Luskin. This is celebrated in Luskin in the Forgotten Realms. And those who finish the race are thought to make winters easier. But again, the pillars are called the Kisses of Oral. You're kissing Oral. Would they be called kisses if it was a male deity? I don't Absolutely know. Absolutely. I don't not. know what they're trying. I don't know what they're trying to do with the kisses. <laughs> Why sexualize her? Why? And it's it's fine. Kisses don't have to be sexual, but the fact that it's a female deity and she has such a connection with kissing, it 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 brings a certain connotation to it that you can't ignore. It it doesn't necessarily make it and make it sexual, but it's always gonna have that because connotation. Because she's celibate. I don't know if that has to do with that. Like, maybe... That makes it even more confusing because she's she's inferred to be a virgin and her clerics are celibate. See? It's very confusing. Like, I really love Oral a lot. I love how complicated she is. I love how fleshed out she gets. Like, throughout the editions, you can, like, see her journey. But there are just some aspects of her that I still am trying to understand. Yeah. Mostly because I'm confused. I mean, it's confusing. It's very confusing. And last but not least, before I get into my quick little story time, uh, her dogma I'm just going to read out, which basically kind of encompasses her personality, what she wants, her motivations, and what she wants, how she uses her clergy, essentially. So she tells her followers to cover all the lands with ice, quench fire wherever it is found, let in the winds and the cold, cut down windbreaks and chop holes in walls and roofs, that my breath may come in, work darkness to hide the cursed sun so that the chill I brine may slay, take the life of an arctic creature only in great need, but slay other, all others at will, make all Faerun fear me. Seems like a pretty standard make everybody fear me. The thing that's a little bit out of place is slay all others at will because, again, the only place that really says that is her dogma. Every other one of her actions and every other one of her motivations say she just wants to be feared. Yeah. But I guess in this case, the dogma is saying, if you have to kill people in order for people to fear me, kill people over animals because animals are better than people. And honestly, who can blame her? Animals are better than I mean, people. Yeah. She's not wrong. <laughs> She's not wrong. And there's that also that druid part of her again. Like mm-hmm. this dogma, I think I took from second edition, but it's... I think since the beginning, she's had a real tie to the druids. Mm -hmm. So ending on a bit of a story time, I found uh, a little bit on this woman called Hedrun Arnsfirth, who is called the White Witch. And she's basically Oral's chosen in an adventure, in a fifth edition adventure called Legacy of the Crystal Shard. And she has a whole section about her. So she, Hedron, fell in love with a young warrior of her tribe. They snuck away to avoid judgment of the tribe because Hedron was exhibiting all signs of being Oral's chosen. Like, she was unaffected by freezing temperatures. She turned warm meals cold. And her tribe's people didn't really drive with that. They thought it was kind of weird. So her and her lover would sneak away. And one of those times they had their first kiss which was their last kiss. 
because obviously her kiss killed because kissing has just it's everywhere it's everywhere in the snow queen and the ice maiden in this ice witch's story is everywhere and it's specifically described as the son of the shaman instantly froze to death touched by his love's lips but killed by oral's jealousy this is where the fifth edition addition of jealousy being part of oral's personality comes in like, this is the only time it is ever mentioned. Oral was never mentioned as jealous before this. She just wanted people to fear her. That was it. She was never spurned by anybody, except maybe Talos, which 5th edition also says later on, like, she always resented Talos, and she's going to, her motivation is to get her powers back and to basically, like, fuck him. Not fuck him, but, like, fuck him, you fuck know? Him up. <laughs> yeah, fuck him up. So I have a conspiracy theory with this story. Yes. And it spurns from that, but also there's a second quote from Oral because Hedron asked Oral why she was chosen. And Oral answered, because you are special, because you are great and beautiful in a way you they cannot understand because you are powerful and they fear that power. Conspiracy theory, I think fifth edition Oral is a lesbian. <laughs> conspiracy theory <laughs> this is the only this is the only evidence i have to that and as soon as i that's just the, that's just the vibe i got oral described her chosen as beautiful which i call my friends beautiful all the time it can be construed another way but she was also like described as specifically jealous which she was never described as before and jealous is usually tied to some sort of emotion having to do with attraction which I could 100% be reaching. I probably am reaching at this point, but I just thought I would put it out there that maybe possibly Oral in 5th edition is possibly. She likes the ladies. I like that. I do like that. That That's like a, I wouldn't say a twist, but it's a twist on the normal understanding of the myth of the Snow Queen, Snow Mm -hmm. ice maiden which yeah I, I i really like that actually i like it too and i hope it's true i it's never been confirmed in any way but i want to believe it's true however if it is true it does contradict some of the things that are said about oral in previous editions where she is said to be celibate which asexuality is a thing you yeah. could still like have feelings for somebody and not want to have sex with them so maybe yeah. maybe oral's an asexual queen oh my god oh. i love that even more asexual lesbian queen oh my god oh this is my this is my headcanon now yeah <laughs> nobody could change my mind this is my conspiracy <laughs> theory headcanon and if i ever portray oral as a dm 100 percent, i will be doing that because <laughs> that just makes sense to me but yeah, that's Oral. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Uh, my conclusion to this section is there are many similarities, I think. Like you can very easily draw strings to the Snow Queen story, to the Ice Queen stereotype, to the Ice Maiden later on. Because again, she is jealous in 5th edition, you know. And that is more something that's aligned with the Ice Maiden story. And I also think she shares a lot of similarities with other goddesses. In the Forgotten Realms, in that sometimes she's given traits just because she's a woman. <laughs> and that's not cool. 
but I still love the concept of her. And like most deities that I end up researching, I really like her. <laughs> I usually <laughs> like most of the deities that I end up doing in some way, shape, or form. And also I want to point out, she has the most fifth edition lore of any deity I've ever seen. And I'm about it. Like I found so much stuff in fifth edition. Like they've rewritten a bunch of stuff. They have not, she appears in not one, but two adventures. The Rhyme of the Frostmaiden being one of them, which is the 2020 adventure. And the Leg- Legacy of the Crystal Shard, which came out, I think, right before fifth edition. But it, it used fifth edition rules, but it, maybe it came out around the time fifth edition premiered. Something like that. I was about it because I I'm so starved for fifth edition deity content that I just like slurped it up like I'd never drank any lore in my life. <laughs> it was amazing. And the last thing I want to say is I want to petition Wizards of the Coast slash anybody who has Oral at their tables to make Oral a neutral deity and not evil because I don't think she's actually that evil at all except maybe being okay with sacrifices. Like, that's it. I Nothing about her screams evil to me. Mm-hmm. And just like nature itself, especially with her alignment with the druids, I think many druids are neutral as a starting point because if they align themselves with mother nature mm-hmm. or the idea of nature, nature is a very neutral thing. And while some of Oral's characteristics and clergy may be harsh, I don't think that... Even neutral evil doesn't make sense to me. I think she's more of a true neutral deity, in my opinion, just from reading her stuff. Because we've read up on Loth, we've read up on Veyron, we've read up on Loviatar, yeah. and Bashaba, and they are evil. <laughs> yeah, they're evil. Yeah. 100%. We want them to be more complicated and fleshed out, but they're, we can, uh, yeah, they're evil. They're, they're cool, cool mode of still murder. <laughs> But with Oral, it's just like, she just wants to be feared. That's it. She doesn't, that's it. She doesn't want to bring eternal darkness and damnation to the world. She doesn't want to, like, kill everybody. She doesn't, she doesn't even want the most power. She's not a power-hungry deity. She just wants to be feared. And honestly, don't we all, as women, <laughs> want to be feared as we rightfully should be? <laughs> Hem. So yeah, that's all I got to say about oral. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. I'm over time as I usually am. So we will, I think we'll probably talk a little bit about oral because what part three is when you talk about Thrym, it's also like, it's not only learning about Thrym as a male version, as an ice deity, winter deity. It's also comparing how a male ice deity is compared to like a female one. Mm -hmm. So we'll probably, I'll probably be interjecting with like, comparing and contrasting oral so you'll you'll still hear more about her in the next section don't you worry don't you worry she's not going nowhere as if Charday would ever be quiet <laughs> listen i have a very traumatic childhood <laughs> where nobody listened to me and i'm making up for it it's <laughs> anyway <laughs> on to part three thrim part three Thrym, a.k.a. Hunky Ice Daddy, <laughs> a.k.a. Chaotic Evil Grandpa. I'm sorry, did you just say a Hunky Ice Daddy and Chaotic Evil Grandpa in the same sentence? <laughs> and I couldn't keep a straight face. <laughs> I, do, I, I bet. So, picture it. 
a beefy Viking man with a Viking, big Viking helmet with huge horns protruding upwards. He is holding a big battle axe, a double, what a double bladed battle axe, a white one. He has on him, he's wearing a fur cape and some leather, is that fur, leather armor? A belt, big beefy white arms, blue hair, beard, mustache. I don't think he has eyeballs. He doesn't look like he has eyeballs. So he's probably blind with fury. I'll go with that. Oh, I was going to go with demon. Well, no, he's a giant. (laughs) A giant god. A giant And also, is he giant everywhere? These are the questions that I do not have the answer for. (laughs) You can decide that for yourself. Fine. I guess. Hunky Ice Daddy is Lord of the Frost Giants. He is a lesser god, according to AD&D and 2E. But by 3.5E, he has become an intermediate deity. He is the patron of Frost Giants, whose home is in Midgard a.k.a. Jotunheim, between the versions AD&D and 3.5, where he lives with other giants. TLDR, Thrym is according to Norse legends. So when I say he lives in Midgard, you might be thinking, hmm, that sounds like Asgard and, you know, Thor, because it's the same thing. It's the same picture. Thor lives in Asgard. It's the inner circle of law and order. I think they're called they're called the they're called the Acer the Acer and outside of Asgard is Midgard which is where the giants live because technically in actual Norse legend he is a giant and giants are not only the race of giant they are actually spiritual beings who have as much power as actual gods so good for them yeah so he's but that's the actual lore but because AD&D was based on, you know, take actual lore, drag it into D&D, put it in there, all well and done. Therefore, between AD&D and 3.5, we have the actual lore of the Norse giant, Thrym. According to AD&D, the giants are crafty and ruthless when it comes to war, but weak-willed and naive when it comes to everyday dealings with giants and other types of people, gods, and men. So by 4E, they have moved him and his little area to the Elemental Chaos, which is also where the Abyss actually resides. He has his own plane, which was forged by himself. It is called Fimble Winter, and it is covered entirely in ice. It is full of vast tundra lit by glittering ice falls. So wait, the plane is called Fimble Winter? The plane within the elemental chaos is called Fimble Winter, and Fimble Winter being going into actual Norse mythology. Fimble Winter is what Thrym wants as a giant to happen because it is the giants are trying to they are the they are chaos incarnate. They are trying to make mm-hmm. the end of the world happen. And the end of the world happens when the giants and the demons fight the gods, and that's called Ragnarok. But before they can fight them, all of this stuff happens. So there's like all of these, uh, 
all of these natural elements come into play. So there's, you know, like volcanic eruptions, there's, you know, all of this chaotic stuff within the world, within the nature, all of it happens. And then it's just a whole bunch of things happen in concession and including Fimble Winter, which is eternal winter. Right. Which is created by Thrym because he is the giant of ice and frost. And then that proceeds and ends in the big fight and in Ragnarok, which is where all the gods and everything dies and the world is restarted again. So Fimble Winter, Eternal Winter, and it's also his plane. And he wants to bring his plane onto the material plane and it's the end of the world. There was nothing about wanting to bring his plane into the material plane, but he does want, in theory, to end the world in eternal winter and then fight okay. fight Thor, fight the eight other Aesir gods, and through that, kill them, kill also have himself killed and everybody else, and then that's the end of the world. I'm assuming from that he is an evil deity. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I, funny you should say that, because the next mm-hmm. part is his alignment. He has always been chaotic evil in every single edition. Every single one. Mm-hmm, every single edition. He's always chaotic evil because he wants to, he is chaos incarnate. We love that for him. Mm-hmm. His portfolio mostly consists of frost giants, but in some of the editions, I believe he was sometimes had cold and ice in there. His domains are chaos, earth, evil, strength, and war. His favored weapon, as I already explained, is a great axe, and his symbol is the white double-bladed axe. He's not really in a pantheon in D&D specifically, or he is sometimes in a pantheon, so like he's usually bunched together with the other Norse gods because mm-hmm. he's a Norse god. But he's not really in a pantheon other than that, other than all of the Norse gods bunched together. His appearance, other than what I described based on one of the images in, I believe that was 3.5? I could be wrong. I would have to double check that. He is said to be wearing a coat of white fur over a suit of chainmail, otherwise appearing to be much like an oversized frost giant. And that's based on AD&D, and that was really the only edition that actually gave a description of him. There's not a whole lot of information on Thrym much at all. They start in AD&D, you have 2E, 3.5. 4E barely covers him. He's mentioned as a side note on locations. And then in 5e, he's not really discussed either. In terms of relationships, because you wanted, you did specifically mention that you were intrigued to hear about the, his relationships compared to Oral. So in his relationships, I it wasn't really part of his relationships, but I did read this. So he apparently has 10 brothers who are in most ways like normal frost giants. And according to, it was one of the earlier editions, If you fight Thrym, he will bring these ten brothers as kind of like minions onto the battle map as well, and you'll have to fight them as well. So there's no no lore to back it up. I have no idea about his brothers. I know that he has a sister based on actual Norse mythology, 
but mm-hmm. apparently he has 10 brothers who fight with him when you fight him in D&D. Huh. His, other than that, his relationship with Thor as an Acer, he hates him and was actually killed by him. So in D&D in 3.5 and in actual Norse mythology, there is a story where Thrym stole Thor's hammer in order to try and persuade and or blackmail Thor into letting him marry another Acer goddess called Freya. He has, he took Thor's hammer, Thor wakes up, he, his hammer's missing, and Thrym's like, yo, if you want it back, let me marry Freya. Let her be my bride and you'll get it back. What Thor and Loki, Loki do is Thor dresses up as Freya, so puts on a, puts on a uh, wedding dress and a veil, and then Loki dresses up as his bridesmaid. And they go to Thrym's wedding, so Thor as Freya, and Loki as the bridesmaid. And essentially, Thor, according to the myth, eats a whole bunch, drinks a whole lot of ale, and impresses Thrym, or surprises Thrym, who's very confused while his uh, new wife, or wife-to-be, is so hungry and drinking so much, but, you know, Loki comes in as the bridesmaid and goes, oh, you know, she's just looking forward to marrying you, kind of thing. Long story short, Thrym's sister comes in looking for the dowry from Thor, and Thrym asks someone to bring the hammer to him, to Freya. So at that point, Thor, as pretending to be Freya, has the hammer, essentially just whacks him in the head, kills Thrym, kills everyone in the entire room, and gets away with murder, essentially. Thor gets away with murder? Well, murdering Thrym. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's a god. He can get away with whatever he wants. Yeah, so (laughs) he gets away with murdering the entire giant clan of Thrym. Everyone in the room. And this is written in D&D. And this is written in 3.5, yes. Oh, Fun, interesting, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And then in 4E, he moves his house from the actual place that he, Jotunheim, to the Elemental Chaos. That's uh-huh. all really that's mentioned about him. And then we come to 5E. And in 5E, in his relationships, you know how Oral never had any relations with anyone? Uh-huh, not that I could find. I don't like your tone. So if we look at 5E, Waterdeep, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, we find a goddess called Nalkara. She is the daughter of said Oral and Thrym. What? She I, is a what? Ne- <laughs> she is a neutral evil goddess who is a strikingly beautiful frost giant with blue skin cold blue eyes, and crackling blue flames for hair. And the only other things that they say, say about her is when she is happy, everything around her seems bright and warm, and when she's unhappy, her surroundings become darker and colder. I never ran into anything having to do with Oral and Thrym when I was looking into stuff. Clearly I missed something, which is my bad, but what the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, this was the 5E Waterdeep. That directly contradicts everything about Oral. Mm-hmm. Oral, like, doesn't have... And, and I'm sure if this 
woman was conceived by both of them. It probably, I don't know, was a one night stand or something, something. But it wasn't like a relationship because that would 100% go against at least oral. Yeah, it, it was. It's never mentioned that she has a daughter. Never in the books that I it's, went over. And it's it never mentioned in sense. any of Thrym's texts either until I read the Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage book. What and I was like, fuck? hello, who are you? That is so interesting because like, it goes against everything that I assumed about Oral just from my research. I don't know much about Thrym, but that is, that really puts a hole in my asexual lesbian theory. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm sad. But wasn't it 5E that made her celibate? 5E made her cleric celibate. It never explicitly said that she was celibate. Okay. But earlier editions of Oral alluded to like her womanhood flower being preserved forever in ice. I don't know. 5E never explicitly said that she was celibate, mm -hmm. but it went along with other editions saying that she didn't have any like close relationships or true love or anything. And you don't have to be in true love to have a kid or anything. But. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Dungeon of the Mad Mage is a fairly new addition to fifth edition. It came out within the last handful of years. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very new lore. It's definitely not in the old ones. Mm -hmm. It must be a new edition. They just say it. Maybe they thought, hey, we have these two um, gods of cold. What if they banged? <laughs> would that what would happen if they banged? What would happen if they banged? Which usually I'm all about. But... I'm too attached to my asexual lesbian theory <laughs> that I choose to ignore this in my own personal headcanon. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, you know, maybe she was testing something out. You know, she had a, she was trying something out. Yeah, Thrym, she like slept with Thrym. She's like, you know what? No. No, not I for like me. The ladies. Yeah, not for me. <laughs> Valid. That is fascinating. So that actually connects these two deities more than I originally thought. Because really... This whole having a part three dedicated to Thrym was more like, oh, let's compare how a male deity of cold and winter, how they're presented compared to a female god of winter and cold. But now they're actually connected in D&D &D lore. Who to thunk? Yep. Who to thunk? Fun fact of the day. We learn something new every day on this podcast. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so it is a... In his abilities, it is listed that he can breathe a cone of cold air that ranges, has a certain range and does a certain amount of damage. I'm not going to go into detail on that. But he's also, interestingly enough, he is a stonemason and mm. does stoneworking. And he can create any magic weapon or armor or any wondrous item related to stoneworking. Or any item that actually uses cold or ice, which is kind of cool. That's pretty cool. Actually, in Baldur's Gate, Descent into Avernus, he has, there is a single item that's really randomly in the hands of a demon lord that's made by Thrym. Yeah. It's called Metallotok, and it's an ancient hammer made by Thrym, and it's the favored weapon of the demon lord Kostchi? Cost 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 oh my god i have no idea why don't they have phonetic pronunciation k o s t c t c h i e 
I think. Yeah. Yeah. Cost t. <laughs> For once, it's not me butchering a word. I feel really happy about that. <laughs> the hammer is frigid to the touch and what wreathed, wreathed in mist. It makes you immune to cold damage and radiates cold in a 30-foot sphere. Solid. Yeah. Random, but kind of cool, I think. Anyway. He has a few cults, and they cooperate with Loki's cult because, well, Loki is god of mischief and is sort of on Thor's side, but sort of not on Thor's side. He wants to teach the world that the world will end in Fimble Winter, so his cult also wants to do that. Mm -hmm. And he wants to especially triumph over Surtur, who is the fire version, or the fire giant. The fire and flame giant, I, I should say. Through the fire and flames. Yeah. That's okay. Sortor, through the fire and flames. Solid. His cult seeks every opportunity to undermine Thor's cult, and they get expert advice from Loki's cult. Wait, Thor's cult or Thrym's cult? So Thrym's cult gets tries to undermine Thor's cult at every opportunity. Thor's a, wait, oh, Thor has a cult? <laughs> what the apparently, fuck? in 3.5, apparently he, Thor has a cult. I mean, sure. You can have a cult following anybody, to be fair. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> maybe maybe they just mean clergy. I don't know. Yeah, is, maybe. Is cult just another word for clergy? Because it could be. You're in a stoke a religious war with those <laughs> words. <laughs> I mean, that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously, speaking just from opinions, not facts. Not facts. He has only an AD&D do art. Or does he have any mention of sacrifices? So it says in AD&D, his shamans offer sacrifices to him through freezing still living people and or humanoids in new ice to appease him. But he doesn't really like other humanoids. He only really grants divine power to giants. And people who devote themselves to Thrym have to hide it because he's not really a good god. So he doesn't really have temples. They're hidden, much like Loki's. And this is in 3.5. So, yeah. It, they, they essentially, all they're doing is dooms prepping for Ragnarok. So they store weapons, prepare, get everything ready for Ragnarok. The world will end in eternal winter. And they're, they're, they're going to be ready for that. And, um, yeah, that's about it. That's Thrym for you. That's all I have. There's not much in there. That's okay. I mean, he's a less, he's like what you talked about with him. That's the amount of information I usually think is going to be attributed to like a lesser deity. Like I was shocked by the amount I found on Oral. Pleasantly shocked, but shocked. Yeah. So I don't know. We could spend, we, st we still got like a handful of minutes. We got like 10 minutes left of this section. Why don't we just do a cash discussion on, you know, the impressions we got on, you know, Thrym's dogma and clergy and backstory compared to Oral's because they have very similar, if not the exact same portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, how does Thrym, like, differ from Oral? Well, I mean, it's more obvious why Thrym is a an evil god. Mm-hmm, for sure. For sure, for sure. He wants to bring about ragnarok and fimble winter the eternal winter which mm -hmm. that's his main goal and that's what he wants to do and he wants to fight ev anyone and everyone in order to do it but mainly thor and the acer and his 
fire bro. Which is, again, why it's so surprising that he, as a god of the Norse pantheon, fraternized with Oral of the Forgotten Realms pantheon. Yeah. They crossed pantheons, which is not uncommon at all. Like, different gods go flit in between pantheons all the time. Shares did the same thing. But it's just... It's just so interesting to me that they have that. I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna get over that. They have that connection. <laughs> never gonna get over it. <laughs> but from what you've talked about with Thrym, like he seems like a very macho, traditionally masculine kind of figure that has a portfolio and a domain over these things. Mm-hmm. Nothing that dichotomy between like kissing and embracing and caresses that. Oral has. You don't see any of that shit with Thrym. It's not even mentioned. At least I didn't read all of it. I don't know that for sure. But in your no, there's, research with he Thrym. He is a macho, macho man. He is hunky grandpa. No, what did I call him? <laughs> hunky ice daddy. Hunky ice daddy. Uh, chaotic chaotic evil grandpa. grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> he is hunky <laughs> ice daddy. There is no femininity in him. Mm-hmm. Which... I mean, Norse mythology, you know, going off of, you know, he has this dichotomy and this relationship with Thor, very traditionally masculine. Mm -hmm. But also Thor cross-dresses, so they have that ambiguity in there. Yeah. Which I loved the fact that there's a story of Thor cross-dressing and then Thrym not being able to tell the difference between Freya (laughs) and Thor in a wedding veil. It's it's a beautiful story. It It is beautiful. I love it. I don't know. It just... It's this is a like you said, this is a god that's taken from a real pantheon. So I guess there's not much that D&D could have done with Thrym. It doesn't seem like they deviated that much from the legend. Would you agree with that? Like they didn't change terribly a lot. They mean I mean, they aligned it with frost giants, which is a race in D&D. But I don't know how much they actually changed. There's not much change. So what they did change was they had to load locate him elsewhere when they switched from 3.5 and moved into 4e because it didn't make sense anymore to have Midgard and Jotunheim in where they are because that's not part of like the D&D realm so they moved they moved him onto the elemental chaos and they're like look what if he has his own plane in the elemental chaos where the abyss is and Mm. he made it himself because he's a god and it's just a frozen plane for him and he hangs out there, you know, in a little hut, a little house and, you know, plans to overtake the world in uh, frozen tundra someday. <laughs> sure. So I'm because Oral and him share this portfolio and it is canonical that they have fraternized, they have met each other, they have a canonical child together. I'm surprised that they don't fight over the domains because usually when you see two gods that have the same domains usually there's lore behind it that says they're fighting over it but they don't have that that i could see they just kind of chill they're like yeah you can have my domain and i can have your domain we can just chill over it (laughs) i think maybe it's because they have such separate goals like he wants to bring about the end of the world she just wants to be feared yeah i don't know or it's the fact that like it could be the fact that D D didn't want to touch Thrym and change him too much because he is an actual Norse god. So they didn't want to give him any canon lore that would fundamentally change who he is. So he would fight women because he, according to myth and legend, he just wants to marry one. 
not fight okay. one. He wants to fight the oh. Acer, which is Thor and Odin and all those gods there. Yes, he wants to bring about like the end of the world, but he br- he does that by fighting. It's the big fight between the demons and the giants and the Acer and the gods. Hypothetical question then: If you if Wizards of the Coast or TSR or Ed Greenwood, whoever got their hands on Thrym and they kind of just took the legend and ran with it, do you think they would have added any of the stuff that they gave to Oral with some of her mannerisms or making the cults, um, or sorry, making her clergy celibate or aligning some of his actions with, oh, you get Thrym's kiss of winter or you go into Thrym's embrace as you were being rescued from this Arctic tundra, do you think they would have done any of that if they had, not necessarily like to the T, but do you think that they would have added stuff like that or no? I mean, maybe, I would say maybe in the earlier editions, yes, but I wouldn't have expected that from the later editions. So the fact that they even canonically made him have a child with Oral just kind of baffles me. Because <laughs> on the one hand, you want to pay respect to the actual lore or you rename the god and then you change him fundamentally. So you start off with an inspiration of he was Thrym and then he mm-hmm. became, and insert any other name here, and then right. fundamentally give him canon lore that and relationships to her and him and fights with him and this other god. And If they did that, do you think they would have softened him up a bit? Because it seems like Oral represents a lot of what he does. Like, yeah, their goals are different, Fimble Winter versus just being feared, but they represent like the harsh coldness of ice. But with hers, there's this certain womanly softness to it. She has abilities and ceremonies where you have specific keywords that are mm. very warm and feminine which again I'm still not sure how to feel about I don't know if I respect trying to turn a phrase or if they just use those terminologies because she's a woman because they've used similar terms with other female goddesses because I have a feeling if they were to ascribe those similar abilities or flesh out the lore in a certain way they wouldn't use words like that it would all be about his strength and masculinity there is the duality of what is ice ice is frigid ice is cold ice is emotionally unavailable (laughs) and the warm loving touch of a woman so they're by giving the ice bitch energy to a woman you're going against everything that women typically are which is warm loving you know, motherly. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it's not surprising that you would have a god, a frosty god like Thrym, but then they would want to do something with playing on the sen- sensualities of a woman who is supposed to be, you know, A, B, C, warm, loving, motherly, but then she's icy cold, and then that'll either kill you or uh, she's trying to seduce you and it'll and you'll end up, you know, turning into ice or something like that. Like, they, I almost see it as they want to play with stereotypes. 
So what you as- yeah. expect isn't what you're getting. But with Thrym, it's more stereotypical. Yeah. With, at least from, like, I, from a gender standpoint. Yeah. With oral, you said, like, there's a dichotomy there. Um, sometimes it's done really well. Other times we don't know how to feel about it, but it is there. Yeah. But with Thrym, it's very cut and dry, except for maybe that one about cross-dressing, which is great. I yeah. love that. I love that for him. But he's not the one who's cross-dressing. Yeah, he's it's not the Thor one who's cross-dressing. Loki. It's Thor who's cross-dressing. So it's not even about him. Yeah, they bring that. Those two yeah. other deities bring that. Thrym doesn't. He's very traditionally masculine. So they challenge the stereotypes more with oral, which I appreciate. But like, there's always that undertone because we've studied so many and we've gone over so many female deities that you see these patterns of even though this is an evil deity, she still has abilities that will kiss you. She's still described as beautiful. Yeah. Like she's still this. They want to keep that femininity so bad. They just want to keep it so bad. Yeah. That it, even when they're doing really interesting things with it, I'm hesitant to praise it. From the offset, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. I like what they're trying to do, but because of their history, I'm not 100% sure about it. I think she's done a lot better than some of the other goddesses that we've covered, specifically because I think they took a lot of inspiration from Hans Christian Andersen and the trope that he ushered into mm-hmm. the cultural more. But with Thrym, it's part of real legend. Yeah. So they can't really it's it, it would be like I think Thrym so comparing them this is really the only god we have to compare with Oral, but we I think I understand that it's not a hundred percent a fair comparison because he is a god from actual mythology. Yeah. It'd be like a more fair comparison would be if they transposed the ice maiden from Hans Christian Andersen's stories and made her a goddess. But they made Oral her own entity and an amalgamation of things. Whereas Thrym is just a copy paste. Yeah. So I'm I we can really only just speculate as to what they would do if they gave Thrym the same treatment and originality makeover that they did with Oral. And with fifth edition Wizards of the Coast, I think they might do a better job with it. But if they tried to do it in earlier editions, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. What what do you think? Do you think if they gave them a makeover, like what 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 do you think that would look like? Or ooh, if you could make over Thrym, what would you do? Now that I really want to know. I would lean into Ice Daddy and Hunky. I, I forgot the names I gave him. For <laughs> you Hunky. gave him these nicknames. Oh, They're right okay. on the dock. <laughs> Hunky Ice Daddy and Chaotic Evil Grandpa. I would lean into Hunky Ice Daddy. I like. I want there to be a. F- I don't know if I want there to be. I would want him to have a softer side instead of this yeah, hard exterior, I just want to marry Freya. I want him to be, I want him to have a cuddly bear side. Is is that just yeah. wrong? No, it's not. And I think you, oh, I think I would do the same thing too. I think I would actually marry both your concepts. I think I would make him a hunky, ice daddy, chaotic, evil grandpa, no comma. <laughs> Like just he he's like he is older appearing, but there's that old um fantasy image that goes around on the internet. It's of like a shirtless wizard who's yeah. casting a spell and he looks like 70 or 80, but yeah. he has like a six. But he has a six That's pack. the kind of energy. Yeah, I would want that. I'd be like, you know what? 
make him like even a step above a silver fox just make him this chaotic <laughs> evil grandpa but he's also a hunky ice daddy <laughs> oh yeah be be my ice daddy please <laughs> your ice daddy through him please daddy daddy sorry. daddy sorry daddy sorry <laughs> oh that was great well we're just about out of time but do you have any other things about thrim that you'd like to like for us to end off on as we conclude this compare and contrast not really i mean i've I've talked about i've talked on different episodes about how you should treat actual gods taken from actual religions and i stand by what i said on those please be truthful and like respectful to other cultures and if you're taking inspiration from them also just i i want thrim the D&D version of Thrym to be hunky ice daddy and chaotic evil grandpa, no comma in between. Can we commission art on that? <laughs> yes, please. Um, I'll get right on that. Oh my god, yes, please. Use um. our Patreon money to fund hunky ice daddy. Hey guys, if you want to fund Thrym hunky ice daddy, daddy chaotic evil grandpa Thrym, why don't you join our Patreon and help us make that happen? <laughs> help us make Hunky Ice Daddy happen. Hunky Ice Daddy 2022. <laughs> oh my God. Well, on that note, um, we're going to move on to our final segment, our concluding thoughts slash outro. Part four, concluding thoughts, a.k.a. conclusion, where we figure out what the fuck we mean. <laughs> And first of all, sure day. <laughs> well, wow, thank you. What a what a wonderful introduction to this outro. This is the section where we make sense of all the shit that we just spat at you, um, hopefully in an eloquent way. So <clears throat> my concluding thoughts. Oral, because that was my big section. Oral, I think, is a tribute to the Ice Maiden. And the Snow Queen. Like, there's no doubt in my mind there are way too many similarities there. And is therefore the definition of what an Ice Queen is in terms of a trope or a caricature. She is also a product of D&D and thus has many ties to how D&D approaches their goddesses. Or at least the ones that we have gone over in this podcast. So female goddesses, they keep their femininity almost to a fault sometimes uh, to make sure that the default of the patriarchy is overcome. So you see that in, you know, the the clergy that they have or some of the abilities that they have, like some aspect of these deities has to be feminine and conform to generalizations of femininity in order to, I, I don't really know in order to do what, I guess, in order to differentiate them. So it's not necessarily a tactic I agree with, but with oral, I see a lot of potential there. I see them trying to do different things with it. I just don't know if I trust them all the way. I have good faith in them, especially if they keep flushing her out in fifth edition. But because it's a pattern that I've seen with other deities, I'm hesitant. Especially since she is now, in my mind, an asexual lesbian queen. Obviously. <laughs> And as for the Ice Queen trope, because I didn't really talk too much about it, so I'll just kind of TLDR my thoughts about that. So Ice Queens is a trope, I think. There's just so much baggage that goes along with Ice Queens uh, when you look at the trope, especially through a feminist lens. 
And as we're looking through it and looking at Hans Christian Andersen's work, looking at Hans Christian Andersen, we're looking at it through a 21st century feminist lens, right? And with that comes a lot of critique on a lot of things. And Ice Queens, when you look at it, when you look at the trope, they are the antithesis of a matronly purist value that traditional women are defined by, especially in our history. Because these values were feared and looked down upon, that made the Ice Queens the villains in a lot of these stories, even modern ones. I have in my notes, but we are in a new age, bitch. <laughs> um, it's the 21st century. Uh, women don't need to be matronly or pure in order to be ex- accepted in society anymore. Parentheses, for the most part. And parentheses. As a culture, at least as a Western culture, we've kind of started to embrace women's autonomy, thank God. And so a lot of the traits that were seen as villainous or as undesirable when Hans Christian Andersen was writing about them, when this trope was first taking form, those don't really apply anymore. So I call for everyone listening to this podcast to embrace the Ice Queen tropes. They don't have to be evil. Give them more empowerment. Make the evil goddesses who have them neutral and not evil because we live in a time where you can do that. It's okay. And embrace Oral and like respect her for what she is. And yeah, don't put her as evil. I'm still calling for her to be a true neutral deity. I stand by it. And to finish off my thoughts, I ran into this article in my research a wonderful like firsthand account of somebody's personal run-ins with being called an ice queen. It's called You're Wrong About Ice Queen by Tabby Kabugi. I hope I'm saying that right. And she says that the ice queen isn't just a cold and cunning leader who reigns with an icy fist and a piercing power as portrayed in mainstream media. She is a woman, just like the rest of us, who struggles with the complexities of the female condition. Being labeled an ice queen shouldn't be viewed as offensive, Rather, it should be something to be proud of. I know I am. And I 100% agree with that. I think you can have icy villains. That's totally valid. You can do that. But I want to see more icy neutral characters, more icy good characters. The trope as as a tool of empowerment, more so as traditionally being aligned with evil and the Christian values of evil. I want to see something done new with it. And I think oral for D&D might be a really good step towards that in the future. Steps off pedestal. That's my TED Talk. Thank you for coming. Thanks. So my turn. In conclusion, I would like to start with the fact that Hans Christian Andersen clearly has mummy issues that he was unable to resolve over his lifetime. I fully respect the feeling or feeling as if you're not good enough or if you're not going to fit in. But man, did the guy write very good stories. The writing is very, very good. Although his motives and the themes behind his writing, based coming from my perspective, which is a modern feminist perspective, There's something very sus (laughs) going on in between the texts. As for the Ice Queens, as a representative Ice Queen of the Slovenly Trolls podcast, (laughs) I would just like to say, confirm that what Sharday just said. So empower the trope, 
Reclaim the labels. Don't give them power over you. Be confidently assertive because as women, as feminine, we can do that. It doesn't, you don't have to be matronly, motherly, loving. You can be yourself. It doesn't matter if you're feminine, if you're masculine. You can have emotions. Or if you don't want to, just don't. But don't attack people for being ice queens and think that that's going to be an insult because I live to be an ice queen, okay? And Oral, as an emotionally unavailable ice queen, she is my icon. She is my role model. I think that Wizards of the Coast should lean into the druid side of her more or the druid supporting side of her. The side that wants to bring the avalanche down on humanity or and or I wrote down humanoid manity because I'm unsure if what humanity becomes in the D&D multiverse. Humanoidinity? Anyway, I would love to see her as an asexual or aromantic even goddess in D&D. Or lesbian. You know, I, I'd be down with that. Or... Maybe she doesn't swing either way. Like, it it would be so cool to see representation for asexual people, aromantic people, or even lesbians, if that's what you want to do. Because representation matters. And also, bring back Hunky Ice Daddy 2022. <laughs> because maybe he just wants to be cuddled. And I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hunky Ice Daddy, Chaotic Evil Grandpa hugs for everybody. Yes. <laughs> um, if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening to us. We got a few couple other things to say. So first off, if you don't know, this is a podcast where we cite all of our sources. So go check those out at can't be killed creations slash sources. We will have that ready for you to peruse at your leisure. So that you know we're not just spouting bullshit. Don't worry, only about 20% of what we say is bullshit. The other 70% is usually cited. And the 20% are up our opinions. So yes. strong opinions. <laughs> if you haven't already, please follow us on a social media. We are pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. We also do the occasional poll, uh, announce what our episodes are going to be ahead of time. We are at Slovenly Trolls at both on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you're feeling it, if you want to toss us a couple of bucks, we also have a Patreon. We share it with our sister podcast right in the feels uh, and just with our network, patreon.com slash can't be killed creations. We have a lot of fun over there. We post Slovenly Trolls After Dark, which is our after show where we talk about all of our cut content and say things without as much of a filter because believe it or not sometimes we actually do have filters even though we all both curse like sailors on here <laughs> um and also we recently reached a patreon goal where every month me i get to rewrite some forgotten realms lore and i already have one on sune slash lady Firehair. it is up on patreon if you toss us five dollars or more and this month at the end of this month, this is June, we're recording this, so July when you're listening to this, we will have a second one up about Loviatar, the goddess of pain. 
which is probably why I mentioned her so much in this episode because I've been writing about her. (laughs) And I think that's about it. Did I forget anything? I feel like I usually forget something. I don't think I forgot anything. Yes? No? No. Okay. I think we're good. No? If I did, oops. And sorry. (laughs) But We'll edit in and you won't even notice. Well, you won't even. It'll be flawless. Absolutely flawless. flawless editing done by Chardin. Absolutely. Just absolutely flawless. <laughs> um, well, that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening again. We love you. Whether you're just listening casually, you follow us, you're on Patreon, whatever. We're just really glad you're listening. And don't forget the number one rule of D&D. Don't be. Don't be. Uh, uh, Dick. Dick. <laughs> Bye. Bye. The Slovenly Tolls podcast is part of the Can't Be Killed Creations podcast network. Make sure to check us out at campykilledcreations.com.